Yesterday, when the news broke that Fox had reached a last-minute settlement with Dominion over the network's false claims about the 2020 election, there was surprise and there was disappointment. Damn it! I want my trial! I want it! I guess it's satisfying, I mean, for Dominion, that Rupee had to fork over a pile of cash, but that does nothing for our democracy. What we need is Fox News personalities who look straight into the camera, admit that they lied over and over again about the 2020 election. America did not get to watch Rupert Murdoch, Rupee, raise his right hand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The country did not get to see testimony from Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson. They did not get any mea culpas under oath. What the country did get to see is a $787.5 million concession from Fox, a nearly $788 million payout that suggests Fox was scared of what awaited the company at trial, a price tag big enough that it verges on something that a lot of people have been searching for for a long time, accountability. And it wasn't just the money. There were also the texts and the emails and the depositions Yesterday, we learned that Dominion waited until the very last minute to settle, despite early offers from Fox, because Dominion wanted to make public as much evidence as possible about Fox's false election claims. Well, for us, the first thing was we wanted to make sure that we had a, 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 um, the time for, for all the truth to come out. We were not willing to settle until uh, the reams of information that we were able to gain through the discovery process had an opportunity to see the daylight. Um, That was a very, very important thing for us. It may not be Tucker Carlson looking straight into the camera and admitting that he lied over and over again about the 2020 election, as Stephen Colbert would like it, but it feels feels an awful lot like accountability season may be starting. Look at what's happening down in Washington, D.C. According to the Justice Department, as of April 6th, over 1,000 defendants in the U.S. Capitol attack have been arrested, including this man here, Dominic Pizzola, a member of the Proud Boys, who today, by the way, blamed the police for stirring up the crowd. Or this man, Christopher Alberts, who was armed with a concealed firearm when he charged at police at the Capitol. Today, Mr. Alberts was found guilty on all nine counts. Sure looks like accountability. And then there are the central players in that same plot, the architects of the big lie. Yesterday in Georgia, District Attorney Fonnie Willis, who is investigating Trump's attempts to overturn the results of the 2020 election in her state, she filed a motion to disqualify the lawyer who is representing 10 of the state's fake Republican electors. Now, some of the information in Ms. Willis's motion, some of the information suggests that some of those fake electors may just be looking at cooperating with the D.A., which could spell trouble for the Georgia Republican Party and trouble for Donald Trump in particular. And then today we learned that Boris Epstein, a top Trump advisor and a semi kind of personal lawyer for Trump, is scheduled to be interviewed tomorrow by prosecutors in the special counsel's office. It's unclear whether Mr. Epstein is being interviewed on the subject of January 6th or on Mar-a-Lago or on both of those things. But given his role in the Trump universe, this is a significant development in a significant set of investigations. So the big wheels on the accountability roadshow, they do indeed seem to be turning. 
But that does not mean that some people will not do everything in their power to grind this movement to a halt. Some people, like Congressman Jim Jordan, who is now the chair of the House Judiciary Committee and head of the apparently ironically named Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. Chairman Jordan is doing something fairly unusual, maybe even unconstitutional, to put a stop to all of this accountability. He is directly interfering in currently the only criminal indictment against Donald Trump. In an attempt to inject a hefty dose of very questionable congressional oversight into Mr. Bragg's investigation, Chairman Jordan is trying to force attorney Mark Pomerantz to testify before Congress. Now, if you remember, Pomerantz was a Manhattan prosecutor who once led the investigation into fraud at the Trump organization under the previous Manhattan DA, Cy Vance. Mr. Pomerantz resigned early last year when the new DA, Alvin Bragg, decided not to seek an indictment against Trump for that fraud at that time. And after Mr. Pomerantz resigned, he wrote a book about that experience, which Mr. Bragg did not appreciate. Chairman Jordan now wants Mark Pomerantz to testify on the record, and he wants to know two things. One, what were the internal deliberations not to indict Trump back when Mr. Pomerantz was running the show? Because that information could presumably be very useful to a group of people who do not want Trump to be indicted in a broader fraud case. And two, Mr. Jordan wants to find out what did the DA's office, what the DA's office did have on Donald Trump and his potentially fraudulent business dealings. Because again, that information could presumably be useful to a group of people who might want to mount a defense if Mr. Trump is indicted in a broader fraud case. So the accountability roadshow continues, and so does the unaccountability roadshow, apparently. Now, Mr. Bragg's office sued Mr. Jordan to block him for enforcing the subpoena to Mark Pomerantz. But today, District Judge Mary Viscosal denied Mr. Bragg's request for a preliminary injunction. Quote, the subpoena was issued with a valid legislative purpose in connection with the broad and indispensable congressional power to conduct investigations. Mr. Pomerantz must appear for the congressional deposition. No one is above the law. D.A. Bragg's office has now filed notice that he is appealing that decision. And it is worth noting that all of this is taking place on the very same day that Alan Weisselberg, the former chief financial officer of the Trump organization, was released from Rikers after serving roughly four months for his role in a decade-long tax fraud scheme. Mr. Weisselberg appears to remain loyal to Mr. Trump, but he is the kind of witness that, if flipped for the prosecution, could secure once and for all accountability for Donald Trump. And that is accountability with a capital A. Joining us now is Catherine Christian, a former special assistant DA in the Manhattan DA's office. Catherine, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. So first, let's talk about what's happening with the testimony, the subpoena of Mark Pomerantz. Well, Chairman Jordan had a big victory today. Yeah. It's being appealed. The judge wrote a very biting 25-page decision. Yes. Um, denying uh, D.A. Bragg's motion to quash the subpoena. In fact, she said that this was a lawsuit dressed up. Really, it's really a motion to quash the subpoena, and it's not a lawsuit. She also critiqued Mr. Bragg's lawyers for not following court procedure. She took about 18 excerpts from Mark Pomerantz's book, mm-hmm. excerpts that shows that he critiqued the hush money investigation. 
when the he one was in the office. Mr. Bragg the one that's pursuing. now been indicted. Yes. In fact, he even quotes, this is according to Mr. Pomerantz, Mr. Bragg saying that he can't see a world where he would ever use Michael Cohen as a testifier, as for testimony. Which is, and Michael Cohen is, of course, the star and witness. He's the star witness. The and so the judge put those excerpts in this decision. She also said that the first 35 pages of the complaint was a public relations tirade against former pre- President Trump. So she put a lot into the decision, the judge, that was very critical of D.A. Bragg and the decision to try to prevent Mr. Pomerantz from testifying. In fact, she even said, you know, there was a book and the DA's office did write a letter to his publisher and asked them, you know, not to do it. But they never sued. They never took any other action. And the judge was critical of that. He had an opportunity to prevent the book from being published, which actually would have probably lost because that would be prior restraint. But they didn't take that opportunity, according to this decision by the judge. Do you, I mean, it sounds like the fact that Mr. Pomerantz went public via the book with so much of his experience in the DA's office really complicates all of this effort, right? Correct. Why, why don't you think DA Bragg mount, why didn't he mount a stronger sort of offense in terms of at least being on the record saying this book? is unauthorized. We do not want it published. Well, he wrote a letter to Simon & Schuster, who are the publishers. He had uh, the Association for Prosecuting Attorneys issue an ethics opinion stating that this was improper. And I believe his general counsel said correctly that that would be considered prior restraint. If you try to prevent a publishing a book, Mm -hmm. then, you know, you might lose that on First Amendment grounds. So he did vocally say that this book was done without his permission. Mm -hmm. And of course, Mark Pomerantz would say, I didn't need your permission. So it is really this book (coughs) has caused a lot of problems as D.A. Bragg thought that it would. And now it has. And now it's being effectively weaponized, right? exactly. So from your point of view, how valuable is Pomerantz's testimony, both in terms of um, the uh, offense, in terms of prosecuting Trump, and the defense that House Republicans would like to presumably mount uh, for Donald Trump? Well, the value, quite frankly, is many people did not read this book. I read the book. (laughs) Many people didn't. So now there will be public hearings and he will spout what he put in the book. So now that will become public. And so people who didn't read the book will now hear it. And also the jury panel who will be selected will now hear, you know, his opinions about the strength of the case or lack thereof of the case that has now been indicted. So that's the value. Um, I would, and that's probably one of the reasons why, you know, this committee wants him to testify so he can say what he wrote publicly. Well, but they, the committee wants a lot. I mean, they want yeah. all documents, basically, that contain the word Donald Trump. I'm paraphrasing, but they have a, a very a dragnet, basically, of, of information that they would like from the DA's office. And I wonder if they're concerned about that broader fraud case that was started under Cy Vance that D.A. Bragg says has suggested continues in his office, do they want the breadcrumbs, basically, that Mark Pomerantz might be able to give them to basically develop a strategy if and when D.A. Bragg or anyone else goes further with a broader fraud indictment? It already can be made that that's what they're doing. Now, they did not request that Mr. Pomerantz produce documents, but they did send a letter to D.A. Bragg and requested that he come testify and produce documents. They also sent a letter to a member of the trial team and asked that he come testify and produce documents. And D.A. Bragg has said that his investigation is still continuing. And that's actually the investigation that the 
attorney general for New York State has brought a lawsuit against Mr. Trump and his family. The Letitia That's James pending. lawsuit. So that yes. could be a criminal indictment. It's now a civil fraud case, but that could be a criminal indictment. Which would carry a, a big implications in terms it, of not just accountability, but but in terms of crimes, right? Exactly. That is, that is where the sort of, it is a weightier investigation yeah, in a so lot of ways. She's civilly charged. The Manhattan DA's office could present to the grand jury and then get an indictment if they chose to. Oh, and what of Mr. Weisselberg, newly released from Rikers, he has counsel that is uh, at least what we're hearing, what is being reported is that this council is potentially more of a hardline council in terms of not playing ball with prosecutors. It is this council is paid for by the Trump organization as his previous council was. How do you read the tea leaves on where I, Alan Weisselberg may be in terms of his utility as a potential witness in future investigations? Well, he's clearly, if he chose, a valuable witness against Donald Trump. And he has to now, he testified at the trial with the Trump organization, and he was beneficial to the prosecution, but also beneficial to the defense. So if he has a lawyer who is saying, my client is not speaking to the DA's office, then he's not going to cooperate. Yeah. But so, the DA's office would very much like him to cooperate. Exactly. And we don't know whether or not they have other charges they may have over his head. So we're not clear about that. And if they do, that could be a reason to maybe have him consider that maybe he might want to cooperate. And not spend the rest of his earthly years yeah, in jail. he's 75 years old, and, and it's not fun to be incarcerated. Yes, and that's an understatement, right? We, we know that the hush money case that uh, the DA Bragg presented certainly implicates uh, Alan Weisselberg. It does not mention him by name, but he he's is all through referred to that. So if you're looking for extra things to hang over his head, I'm not saying, just saying. Maybe it's that. Captain Christian, thank you for your time and expertise, as always. It's great to see you. Thank you. We have a lot more to get to this evening. The shadow primary between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis cranks into high gear as the Florida governor's legislative accomplishments are undercut by his inability to secure actual legislative endorsements. And with the fate of abortion still in the hands of the Supreme Court, pharma issues a cry for help, or more precisely, a lawsuit will it sway the court's conservatives? That's next. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday.
When it issued its Dobbs ruling, the one that dismantled Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court basically said it was done with the business of adjudicating abortion. The justices they were, said they were, were kicking it down to the states. Thank you very much. Please do not come knocking on our door again. Ten months later, it is clear that, well, the Supreme Court was kidding itself. It is very much in the business of adjudicating abortion. There is the ruling from a federal judge in Texas that basically undid the FDA approval of mifepristone, the first of two pills used in a medication abortion. If the Supreme Court agrees to allow that Texas ruling to go into effect, it will be like we are back in the year 1999 before Americans had access to a drug that has a strong safety record and has been used by millions of people in this country over the last 23 years. And if the Supreme Court does do that, they will have to deal with a competing ruling that came down almost immediately after that Texas ruling, this one from a federal judge in Washington state who ordered the FDA not to restrict access to mifepristone. So what does the court do about that? And then there is the ruling from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, the one that tries to strike this sort of middle ground. That one wants to send America back to the year 2015, before the FDA tweaked its rules about mifepristone. That ruling from the Fifth Circuit allows mifepristone to stay on the market, but with strict limits, like banning its use after seven weeks of pregnancy, barring mifepristone from being sent in the mail, and reversing the FDA's approval of a generic version of mifepristone. As it turns out, that too is a complicated path, because today there is a new lawsuit from the generic version of mifepristone. The company that makes it is now suing the FDA to keep the agency from complying if the court orders generic mifepristone off of pharmacy shelves. So with all of this legal chaos facing a court that thought it was out of the business of abortion law, is it any wonder that a few hours ago, Justice Alito bought himself some time to think about everything? Now, Alito had put a temporary pause on the rulings by the lower court, and that temporary pause was supposed to expire tonight at midnight. But today, Justice Alito gave himself just a few more days to give the court some time to figure out what to do. Joining us now is Tali Farhadi and Weinstein, former federal and state prosecutor in New York. Tali, it's great to see you. This seems like a colossal mess and one I might add completely of the Supreme Court's making. So my sympathy only extends so far. How what do you make of Alito's self-imposed midnight deadline that Alito then extended to uh, another self-imposed deadline two, two days later? Right. So there's no rule that says the court has to give a deadline when it issues a temporary right. stay. Uh, that's a practice that Alito has. And so he made a deadline and the Supreme Court wasn't going to make it. And so he's extended it. But, you know, it's not really about Justice Alito. It's not really meaningful that it comes from him. He just happens to be the justice who deals with the Fifth Circuit. And so I don't think it gives us it doesn't really give us insight into what he's thinking. I think what it tells us is that someone at the Supreme Court is writing something mm -hmm. about the ultimate decision they're making about whether to keep the stay in place. So to keep that te Texas district court opinion from going into effect while the entire thing is briefed and the merits make their way up to the Supreme Court. So, okay, so Tali, I'm going to read. He, someone at the court is writing something. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. That is what we call in this industry a deep tease, Tali. <laughs> Could that something be, I mean, what is that something? Because all these paths 
short of throwing this thing out on standing, which is arguably something that they could and should do, are pretty complicated if they want to play ball with the anti-choice conservatives who are very much mm-hmm. the base of the Republican Party that conservatives on the court say they have nothing to do with but keep seem to, seeming to appease. Um, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think that something is that someone's writing? OK, well, if I have to guess with more specificity, I think that the court is going to keep this stay in place while this case is developed and until they make a final decision. And I'll go even farther uh, into making predictions. I think that ultimately the FDA is going to win and the plaintiffs who brought this lawsuit are going to lose. And the reason why is that the Fifth Circuit's standing decision is it's not just intention with 50 years of Supreme Court doctrine about standing, about who gets to bring a lawsuit in a federal court, but it is just completely the opposite of everything the court has said. And, you know, those rules are really important. So the standing decision here says, well, it's just based on statistics. It says it's statistically probable, inevitable, likely they they use all of this kind of language that some of these ER doctors are going to deal with a botched medical abortion at some point, and they're going to be really traumatized by it, and they're going to be injured by that, and so they can bring this lawsuit. And it says their organization is really frustrated in its ability to be able to educate people about the pills, and so they can bring this lawsuit. But but that is actually the opposite of a doctrine that has been developed so people can't just go into federal court to and get sue. policy made. Yes, exactly. To have policy be made by judges rather than by legislators. And I, I just don't see a majority of this court. This is not a left right issue. I don't see a majority of this court blessing this because it would just change what happens in federal court in such a profound way that goes way beyond anything having to do with abortion. There's also, I mean, previous kind of the justice's own records on this, right? Uh, Justice Kavanaugh, if he wants an off ramp for all of this, the pharma angle, the FDA involvement in all of this. I mean, you know, when he was a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court, his opinions were pretty clear. At one point, I think we have a um, Uh, an analysis of this. But at one point, Kavanaugh urged judges to defer to the FDA and other scientific agencies, largely on the ground that courts could not compete with the agency's expertise. Kavanaugh also sided with the FDA in a case over whether the agency should be forced to provide access to an unapproved drug. Well, the inverse of that is be, be forced to take away access to an approved drug. Right. And you would think he would follow suit. Um, it it seems like the writing is on the wall for this. And yet, um, I don't know. I just wonder if the courts are going to be taken off as a as a mech off the table as a mechanism to enforce abortion restrictions. So I don't think completely. But I think in this case, yes, because we talked about standing. That's a gateway issue. If you can't bring the lawsuit, then there's nothing left to say. But even if they were to get past that, then, as you said, Alex, the idea of getting into the business of the FDA's decision making and the decision making of other agencies in this invasive way uh, is just so hard to absorb for the pharmaceutical industry to absorb that uh, that's a second reason why I think that ultimately the FDA is actually going to win this one. Do you see what's happening here, setting the actual issue of abortion aside for a minute, the idea that you have this judge, this Trump appointed judge who's known as an activist, a conservative radical, if you will, in some in some corners, he they, they judge shop to get the, the suit in front of him. At the same time, a judge in Washington state is kind of casting an eye to 
what's happening in Texas and passing his own ruling to kind of preemptively create chaos here or a roadblock, if you will, so that this has to go up the, the chain of the courts. Is this the way that we're going to, is this the future for America, <laughs> right? That you have effectively different circuits, different judges, blue state judges, red state judges competing with each other, you know, blue state judges to enshrine freedoms, red state judges to, in some cases, foreclose on those freedoms. And this is how we fight our political battles now through different ju- judicial rulings. As a lawyer and, and as an American, I sure hope not, because this is the intersection of two two really troubling things. One is the shopping for the judge. I mean, we've always had some amount of forum shopping, but now it's possible to actually target a specific judge, not just a district where you choose to bring your case, coupled with the rise in nationwide injunctions, with which, again, both left and right have criticized the idea that one judge, uh, even if he were chosen at random, she were chosen at random, makes a decision that affects the whole country when it's not absolutely necessary yes. to do so. When you put those two things together, you wind up in the situation that we are in here. And we're now up to three different district courts that are weighing in on this one lawsuit, really, this one issue about the approval years and years ago, decades ago of the abortion pill. We have to say the word like numbers one, nine, 19 to go back in time to when Mifeprostone was really actually being initially regulated. I don't know. It just seems like a very combustible moment and could really undermine the legitimacy of the courts. All of this back and forth. Tali Farhadi and Weinstein, it's always good to see you. Thanks for your time, my friend. We have even more this evening. We will take another trip down to DeSantis world as Governor DeSantis continues to use his state as a lab for his presidential ambitions. And this shooting of a 16-year-old black child by an elderly white man in Missouri who was apparently standing his ground is the latest twist in a long, knotted line that goes back more than 150 years. The shadow cast by racism, slavery, and the Second Amendment is coming up next. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. I have a concern because of the culture. Uh, And in uh, American jurisprudence, it is difficult to convict a white man for harming a black child. It should not be so, and I'm hoping this this case turns the tide. 84-year-old Andrew Lester was arraigned today in Clay County, Missouri, for shooting 16-year-old Ralph Yarrell last week after Yarrell rang his doorbell. Lester pleaded not guilty to charges of first-degree assault and armed criminal action. His next court date is scheduled for June 1st. And remember, the reason why Mr. Lester was arraigned just today, which is a week after he shot Ralph Yarrell, is because police let Andrew Lester 
go. The night of the shooting, Lester told the police that he acted in self-defense, that he was scared to death of Jarl's size. According to the family of Ralph Jarl, the teen is five foot eight and weighs 140 pounds. Also remember that Missouri is a stand-your-ground state where you do not have the duty to retreat if you reasonably fear death or bodily harm. You don't have to retreat. You can just shoot. So Andrew Lester stood his ground and police let him go. That is why hundreds of protesters gathered this weekend in Kansas City's Northland, which is north of the Missouri River, and it's where the shooting happened. They wanted Jarl's shooter arrested, and they wanted him charged, and they wanted the Northland community to grapple with its history of racism. When black residents in that area first heard of Jarl's shooting, they echoed the Missouri NAACP's president's feeling that it brought back the sentiment that African Americans, black people, just don't belong there. Now, what is notable about Northland, aside from the fact that 60 percent of its residents are white, is that it sits within Clay County, which is a staunchly Republican area. Clay County voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump both times, just like the state itself. Missouri voted for Trump in both elections. Missouri is also one of about 30 states with stand your ground laws on the books. It was also one of the states that enslaved black people before the end of the Civil War. And if you're wondering what those two maps have to do with each other, it turns out they have a lot to do with each other. The right to armed self-defense, like Stand Your Ground, stems from the Second Amendment, which says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. That amendment has been the NRA's rallying cry for years. Here's the thing. The Second Amendment was ratified when Southern states enslaved black people. And that amendment did not apply to enslaved people. Instead, historians argue that it was created because of them. The militias referenced in the Second Amendment were primarily there to aid slave patrols and shut down slave revolts. They were worried about uprisings. In 2021, historian Carol Anderson described the event in 1791 that was behind that fear. It was the Haitian Revolution. Now, this country has a long history of gun policy that buttresses the power of white Americans at the expense of black people. Historians argue that that history is still alive today, both in the application of our gun laws and in American culture itself. It was seemingly alive in November 2021 when Kyle Rittenhouse, the teenager who fatally shot two men and wounded another during a Black Lives Matter protest, when Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted. When he stood trial, his lawyers argued that Rittenhouse was just exercising his Second Amendment right to stand his ground, to be part of a well-regulated militia, to defend himself with a gun. And after the courts acquitted him, gun culture celebrated him. Donald Trump welcomed him to Mar-a-Lago. Rittenhouse became a sort of gun celebrity. In fact, this weekend, Kyle Rittenhouse was the headliner of a Republican gun fundraising event in Idaho, which was promoted as trigger time with Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse received a standing ovation the same weekend that Ralph Jarl's family was waiting to see if their son would recover from his stand your ground shooting. That is where American gun culture is. As for Andrew Lester in Missouri, we are waiting to see if this case turns the tide on that very culture. Coming up later this hour, there are two states in America where it is still a crime for an unmarried couple to live together. Democrats in one of those states want to fix that but some Republicans are not on board. I will give you one guess why. 
And then there is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis trying to out-Trump Trump on the culture war front. But is it working? That is not a rhetorical question. And it is next. Gender ideology has no place in our K through 12 school system. And we've made that very, very clear. It is wrong for a teacher to tell a student that they may have been born in the wrong body or that their gender is a choice. And so we don't let that happen in Florida. And if Disney objects to that, well, so be it. We're going to do what's right. That was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in South Carolina today celebrating his don't say gay law. Now, that law banned teachers from talking about sexual orientation or gender identity in the classroom. It was widely opposed by educators and parents and businesses in the state, including Florida's largest single-site employer, Disney. But despite the backlash, DeSantis not only continues to tout the law, he is actually expanding the law. The current law prohibits any discussion of sexual orientation or gender identity in classrooms from kindergarten to third grade. But today, at the behest of Governor DeSantis, Florida's Education Board extended that rule, prohibiting LGBTQ discussions all the way through a Florida student's senior year of high school. Now, all of this is supposed to be a part of DeSantis's master plan to out-conservative Donald Trump in the Republican presidential primary. But polls show that Donald Trump continues to widen his early lead over Ron DeSantis. And then there is this little data point. This week, Governor DeSantis traveled to Washington to make a big show of trying to get endorsements from Republican members of Congress. But by the time that meeting arrived on Tuesday, several members of Congress from the state of Florida had already announced their support for Donald Trump. As of this afternoon, Trump has racked up endorsements from more than half of the Florida Republican congressional delegation. Joining us now is former Missouri senator and current MSNBC political analyst, the great Claire McCaskill. Claire, what what do these endorsements tell you about the DeSantis campaign? Well, if you look at what DeSantis is trying to do, DeSantis is trying to be a more a less chaotic Donald Trump. He has taken up the culture wars with a lot of gusto and gone after this. And by the way, we should point out, Alex, that the law that was passed was a typical culture war trying to address a problem that didn't exist. There were not teachers in K through three talking to their students about sexual orientation. That wasn't occurring. It was just one of those false flags that Republicans put up around culture wars to try to get the base all revved up. So the thing that has happened to to DeSantis is he was going to be the less chaotic, Harvard-educated Donald Trump. Turns out, and supposedly smarter than Trump, turns out not so much. He has made so many blunders in the last three months, and we can go through them. There's a number of them. But I think at the top of the list is the fight with Disney. I mean, here's a beloved entity in the United States of America, uniquely American, um, Mickey Mouse and and Star Wars and Toy Story and all the things that my grandchildren love. He goes after them. And what is his goal here? What is he trying to do? What is victory for him? Driving them out of the state? drying up the most important source of jobs in Florida and not to say anything about the economic activity that is generated at the properties in Disney. 
Uh, there is no victory here for him against Disney. And what's happening is a lot of the big donors that DeSantis needs are going, wait a minute. We didn't sign up for a guy who is going to decide to use the heavy hand of government to try to control business in his state. It really is backfiring on it. Yeah, it's totally antithetical to what most Republican donors want to see from their governor. I think Rolling Stone has some texts from donors who are big Republican donors saying on a group chat of wealthy DeSantis donors, participants exploded with alarm over the Florida governor's presidential prospects. What the F is wrong with R.D.? We're using some abbreviations there, but I think you guys can fill in the blanks. I mean, this is someone who um, Trump is now. I mean, look, Trump is in on on the he's piling on as well. Trump on Truth Social. DeSanctus is being absolutely destroyed by Disney. Disney's next move will be the announcement that no more money will be invested in Florida because of the governor. This is also unnecessary, a political stunt. I mean, I guess, Claire, I mean, I would say there's a real world effect to some of the don't say gay stuff beyond the culture war that he's obviously stoked. To not have seniors in high school be, you know, able to learn about gender identity, sexual education more broadly, all of this legislation has, has had a profoundly chilling effect on teachers and students. People are unsure of what they can actually talk about. And it's not good for K through three. And it's very problematic for K through 12. This stuff, none of it's good for the state of Florida. And it increasingly looks like it's bad for the campaign of Ron DeSantis. Do you think he is just surrounded by bad advisors? I mean, as someone who's run campaigns yourself, do you think this is coming from DeSantis or do you think that this is just terrible political strategy? I think it's a little bit of both. I think he got really full of himself when he had such a big victory last fall in Florida. And, you know, I'm not really sure exactly why his victory was so big. But after that, he began behaving like he was bulletproof. I mean, talk about political malpractice. He goes to Washington to supposedly arrive to the throngs of elected members of Congress saying, you're our Republican candidate. We want you. As it turns out, he had no endorsements lined up whatsoever in Washington. And Trump did. So he goes to Washington and just looks dumb as Republicans leave meeting with him. Republicans from his own state leave the meeting with him and immediately endorse Trump. Yes, uh, it couldn't it couldn't have gone worse for him. You you know how endorsements work, right? Like the idea that a candidate would go to the Hill, you know, trumpeting his prospects and then be like, literally, it's like a facepalm. The idea that these guys come out of the meeting and go with go for Trump. I mean, that doesn't happen in American politics, right? These things are pretty orchestrated. They're very orchestrated. And the fact that it wasn't shows that these guys aren't ready for prime time. DeSantis isn't and neither is his team. The other thing you got to realize is he made a huge blunder on Ukraine that we have to figure into the equation. A lot of foreign policy people around the country that are very, very loyal Republican donors are going, wait a minute, what is he doing? Then on top of that, he signs a six week ban on abortion and tries to do it quietly so that doesn't really help him with the really crazy right wingers on these issues. And it certainly hurts him with a whole lot of independent voters in his state. And in the middle of all the gun violence, he's he's passing more legislation and signing more legislation to make it even easier to carry a gun, no matter who you are 
no matter what your qualifications or background. Yeah, I mean, it's the list is long because we didn't even get to the other topic, which is the social safety net that Trump is just eviscerating DeSantis on. And this is Donald Trump eviscerating um, Ron DeSantis with what I think is one of the most cutting political ads of the decade. Control Room, do we have time to play the putting fingers ad? Let's play it for our audience. Who have, for those who have not seen this, this is a new ad. Ron DeSantis loves sticking his fingers where they don't belong. And we're not just talking about pudding. DeSantis has his dirty fingers all over senior entitlements. Like cutting Medicare, slashing Social Security, even raising our retirement age. Tell Ron DeSantis to keep his pudding fingers off our money. Oh, and somebody get this man a spoon. For those who do not know, that, ar- that arises from a uh, Daily Beast reporting that Ron DeSantis, once in a meeting, was um, unable to procure a spoon and ate pudding with his fingers. I cannot attest. We cannot attest to the veracity of that. <laughs> it is a disgusting ad. But, Claire, setting aside the, the grossness of it, it's something you could see um, Joe Biden running against uh, against Ron DeSantis. And it's coming from one of the Republican Party's own. That's a Trump-endorsed ad or a Trump super PAC ad that I think is rather effective in painting DeSantis as a greedy individual. This is a moment where I want to get popcorn and a Diet Coke and I want to watch Trump and DeSantis go after each other for the next year, because that's what's going to happen. Um, I will tell you this. Um, between Trump, DeSantis, and Mickey Mouse, my money, my money is on Mickey Mouse. You know it, Claire McCaskill. As a mom with a four- and five-year-old, Disney is escapable, I can, inescapable. I cannot underscore that enough. The great Claire McCaskill, thank you for your time tonight, Claire. It's great to see you. You bet. Thanks, Alex. We have one more story for you about how Democrats in Michigan are trying to undo an outdated law that criminalizes unmarried couples who live together. Yeah, you heard that correctly. Some of their Republican colleagues are not on board. That's next. The punishment is up to a year in prison and a fine of up to $1,000. The crime? Lewd and lascivious cohabitation a.k.a. people living together out of wedlock. CASP. (gasps) That law from 1931 is still on the books in the state of Michigan today. This legislative session is the first time in 40 years that Democrats in Michigan have been in control of the state house and the state Senate and the governor's mansion, and they are using their newfound power to do a little legislative spring cleaning, shall we say. They are getting rid of old zombie laws that just don't make sense anymore here in this 21st century of ours. And you would think this one would be unanimous. It is not. Today, again, in the year 2023, nine Republicans in the Michigan State Senate voted against repealing this law. Two Republicans even gave floor speeches about why laws like these are necessary to promote what one of them called, quote, good morals. The other Republican explained that while he didn't support the criminal penalties of the old law, he didn't like that repealing it would mean that unmarried people would be able to claim the same benefits as married people on their taxes. He said he would easily be a yes on the bill repealing the law if the tax structure continued to encourage marriage. As wild as it is to see elected officials on the side of the zombie in the zombie law debates, it is also kind of nice to hear the quiet part out loud. 
This is genuinely how a big chunk of the modern Republican Party actually thinks. Whether it is abortion rights or drag shows or banning books, a whole section of the GOP wants the government to tell you how to think and how to dress and apparently who you can live with out of wedlock in the year 2023. Ladies and gentlemen, the grand old party. That is our show for tonight. I'll see you again tomorrow.